In our text this morning, Jesus has just finished giving one of his most difficult teachings. Jesus told the people that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood if they wanted to follow him. Now, many would consider this sermon a bomb, a failure, a terrible sermon. Why would they think that? Because John chapter 6, verse 60 says this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with Jesus. This tells us how offensive Jesus' teaching was. Now, mind you, these weren't simply church hoppers or uh, church shoppers who walked away. The text says that they were disciples. Think of it this way. They were the Sunday school teachers, the nursery workers. They were the long-standing pillars of the church. And now, after just one sermon by Jesus, they're gone. As one group of disciples walks away, those who remain, look, look at what they are doing in, this, in verse 61. It says they're grumbling. Grumbling. You see, that's what the Israelites did after crossing the Red Sea and drinking the bitter water, Exodus 15, 24. Grumble. It's what the religious leaders did against Jesus' teachings in this same chapter, chapter 6, verse 41. Grumble. It's what the unbelieving crowds did after Jesus talks about how both himself and his teachings are from heaven. You see, to grumble is to not trust. To grumble is to not believe. Now, we're witnessing the disciples' distrust in Jesus begin to slip. It begins to falter. It begins to weaken. Now, there's an important principle of discipleship to catch here as disciples begin to act as unbelievers. You see, when we obey the truth we see in Scripture, we will be taught more truth. But Scripture warns that if we resist the truth, then we lose the capacity to see and to hear further truth of Jesus. And that's what we see happening here in verse 60. Uh, it says this, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, the word hard here doesn't mean difficult, uh, but it's hard to accept. It's intolerable. There wasn't a lack of understanding among the disciples. No, they grumble because they do understand, and they don't like the implications of Jesus' teachings. You see, Jesus is demanding two actions from his disciples. First, he's demanding a surrender to Jesus as the final authority. And second, Jesus is making the requirement of a moral authority on his disciples because only the pure in heart may see God. Jesus is giving them doctrine that's intended to feed their souls, and it comes from heaven. However, these disciples prefer their own doctrine, their own beliefs on how life is to be lived. See, all they can think about is food, food that feeds the body. And Jesus is talking about food that feeds the soul. Scripture, God's words, Jesus' words are often shown in Scripture to be the source of eternal life. And here are just a few examples. John chapter 12, verse 48. His words will judge us. John chapter 12, verse 50. The commandments of Jesus are eternal life. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Jesus' words can build us up and they are an eternal inheritance. James chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus' words can save our souls. 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 to 23. His words give us a new birth. You see, as Jesus gives his disciples his word, they reject it. They can't believe it. What is happening to the disciples in John chapter 6? It can happen to us. We can go so far in believing Jesus' teachings, but come to a point where we no longer tolerate what Jesus is asking of us through his teaching. This is what leads Jesus to say what he does in verse 65. He says this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. So how does God enable his disciples? Well, he draws us to himself and his son by his love, which he has poured out generously into our hearts. Romans 5, verse 5. John chapter 3, verse 16. But God also draws us to Jesus, and we choose to show our faith in Jesus by our works. James chapter 2, verse 18. And as John 7, 17 teaches, the only way to learn about God is by doing God's will. If all a disciple does with Jesus' teachings is to hold it in as knowledge, if they fail to act on what they know, they live by their personal will, not the will of God. So in John 6, God the Father is trying to teach the crowd of disciples more about Jesus. But the disciples reject it. They do not believe what they're being taught. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who, catch this, diligently seek him. You see, we understand the belief part. But what we often ignore is the diligently seek him part of faith. See, belief by itself, it's not enough. We also must believe that God is moral. We must believe God rewards the righteous who come to him. You see, we need to recognize our desperate need for God. Proverbs 8, 17 says this, I, God, love those who love me, and those who seek me early shall find me. Isn't that good? I love those who love me. You see, some disciples are willing to go with Jesus so far, but no further if Jesus demands too much of them. So, are you with me? I hope this is making sense. Let's continue. Now, remember what John 6 is all about. Jesus is telling them to eat his flesh and drink his blood, verse 56. This is not how Jews were taught to handle blood. In fact, I'm going to read a chunk of scripture here for you to understand. In Leviticus 17, 10 to 14, it reads this way. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut that person off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For, as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, nor shall any alien who resides among you eat blood. 
And any one of the people of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them, who hunts down an animal or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. For the life of every creature, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Now notice how when God lays down his law, there is no wiggle room here whatsoever. You don't eat blood. End of discussion for a Jew. There were no circumstances where that law could be broken or swept aside by a Jew. To ignore this law meant that a person was cut off. A Jew was cut off from God forever. So this divine commandment, it was deeply ingrained in the daily life of the Israelites. In fact, this commandment governed what was possible for lunch and what wasn't for every day of their lives. In fact, it was such a basic law and so much a part of the ancient Jewish people that it's still a cornerstone of modern Jewish eating today. For instance, there are are slaughterhouses in America that produce meat that bears the identification as kosher, meaning it still follows the basic laws of Leviticus 17. So when Jesus said that in order to inherit eternal life, you must drink his blood, he was using offensive language that seemed to go against thousands of years of biblical teaching. It was like nails to a chalkboard for an ancient Jew. In their minds, it would have put Jesus' religious credentials into serious question. It would have made some of them question whether they could still follow Jesus? Could they subject their children to this blasphemous, anti-biblical teaching? That's what the Jews were thinking, and that's why many of them turned from Jesus. In fact, even Jesus's closest followers did a double-take. The source of disgust in Jesus' listeners is God's clear prohibition of consuming blood in Leviticus 17. And I believe that Leviticus 17 is exactly what Jesus was getting at, but by a different route. In Leviticus 17, verse 14, it says, For the life of every creature, its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Remember that? Blood wasn't forbidden because it was messy. Blood wasn't for, uh, forbidden because it stained whatever it comes in contact with. Blood was forbidden because blood is holy. If you read the book of Leviticus, many portions of it are concerned with what to do with the blood and the body parts of sacrificed animals. When animals were sacrificed to God, as explained in Leviticus, the meat was divided in three ways. Now, some of the meat was given back to the person making the offering. Another portion of the meat was given to the priests to consume. And then some of the meat was burned on the altar and totally given over to God in worship. But 
the blood of the sacrifice. The same thing always happened with the blood. The blood was always given to God. Usually it was poured onto the altar directly. Why? Because God considered the blood holy. God considered it holy because blood was the very life of the animal. Life is in the blood of any creature. So when Jesus says that his followers are to drink his blood, what's he saying in the ancient biblical language of Leviticus? What he's saying in the ancient language of Leviticus is this. Take my life, my teachings, and pour them into your bodies, into your lives, into your souls. By pouring his eternal lifeblood into our souls, we become recipients of eternal life ourselves. By drinking in Jesus' teaching, the life of Jesus courses through our veins. This is such a troubling idea for the majority of Jesus' disciples that Jesus asks his remaining disciples this question, do you wish to go away? And guess who is the first one to answer that question? Yep, good old Peter. But his answer is kind of odd. Look at verses 68 to 69. Peter says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. How would you describe the nature of Peter's response. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't really say, yes, Jesus, we're going to leave you because you are a heretic. But neither does Peter say, no, Jesus, we're sticking with you no matter what. He never says either one, does he? Actually, Peter doesn't give an answer at all, but he gives a question. To whom else will we go? Peter's saying, Though I do not completely understand this, we won't stop following you, Jesus. You see, this is the mark of a true believer. When Jesus said to them, will you go away also? Jesus would have let them walk away. You see, Jesus never holds captive anyone in the life of discipleship against their will. In the text, Peter gives three reasons why he's not quitting on Jesus. First, Peter says his belief in Jesus will not allow him to follow anyone else. His belief in Jesus will not allow him to follow anyone else. I like how Ray Stedman imagines Peter's response to Jesus. He has Peter saying this, Lord, we've been thinking about it. We've looked at the alternatives. Now, Jesus, you're not easy to live with. In fact, there are times you embarrass us. You frighten us. We don't understand you at times. Now, we see and hear you do things that simply blow our minds. You offend people whom we think are important. We've looked at some alternatives. But I want to tell you, Jesus, we have never found anyone who can do what you do. So Jesus, to whom shall we go? Jesus, you have two things that hold us, two things we cannot deny, your words. 
What you say to us, to us has met our deepest need. It's delivered us from our sins. It has freed us from our fears. Your words, Lord, are the most remarkable words that we have ever heard. They explain us and they explain life to us. They satisfy us. Jesus, nobody speaks like you do. Nobody understands life like you do, but also your character. Jesus, your words and your character, that's what keeps us with you. There's something else in Peter's response that is helpful. Look at verse 69. Peter says, we have believed and we have come to know. You see, both phrases are what's are in what is called the perfect tense. And what that means is that Peter's understanding comes out of his progressive experience with Jesus' teachings. Let me say it this way. Peter is saying, we had knowledge of you, Jesus, your life, your claims, the evidence of your miracles, which supported your claims. Jesus, everything you said proved to be true. And weighing the evidence, how can we do anything else but trust you? You see, we come to believe in Jesus as we know him more and more and more through God's word. If your belief in Jesus wavers, it is likely because you are struggling to know Jesus through God's word. Your belief in Jesus is only as strong as your continual growth in the knowing of Jesus' words. This is especially true when we consider at what point John 6 is being taught in Jesus' ministry. It occurs at the peak of his ministry in Galilee. This means the disciples have been with Jesus through a great deal and a lot of success. But there's more to come. In fact, from this point on, things begin to gradually get tougher as the death of Jesus on the cross draws closer. I say that so that we understand that the journey of knowing and believing Jesus, it's a long journey. It takes time. There will be ups, there will be downs. And that is why faith is so important in our pursuit of Jesus. We never stop. Even when we do not understand what Jesus is asking of us, we say, where else can we go? We're not leaving you, Jesus. You are truth. Uh, Japanese marathon runner Shizo Kanakuri competed in the domestic qualifying trials for the 1912 Stockholm Olympics. He set a marathon world record and was selected as one of the only two athletes that Japan could afford to send to the event in 1912. However, Kanakuri shockingly dis disappeared during the 1912 Olympic marathon race. He had, he had a rough 18-day-long trip to Stockholm, first by ship and then by train, all through the Trans-Siberian Railway and he needed five days simply to try to recover for the race. Kanakuri weakened by the long journey from Japan. He lost consciousness midway through the race, midway through the marathon, and was cared for by a local family. Well, he was embarrassed by his failure to finish the race, 
and so he returned to Japan without notifying race officials. Swedish authorities considered him missing for 50 years before they discovered that he was living in Japan. So in 1967, he was offered the opportunity to complete his run. He accepted the invitation and completed the marathon. His marathon race time was another world record. It took him, catch this, 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20.3 seconds. Afterwards, he said, It was a long trip. Along the way, I got married, had 6 children, and 10 grandchildren. What's the point? It's this, following Jesus is a 50-year marathon that we never quit running. As we see in John chapter 6, there will be disciples we see quit on Jesus. And maybe you're one who has considered quitting on Jesus. You're not alone. The Bible is full of stories of people who quit, but later, with God's help, finished the race. Think of Moses. He spent 40 years in the wilderness before God renewed his call. How about Peter? He denied Christ, went back to fishing, but Jesus restored him and Peter finished the race. The list continues. Samson, John Mark, and others who eventually finished the race. So let me ask you this question. Which words of Jesus are hard for you to accept? Uh, Don't quit on Jesus. His teachings are true. Allow God to draw you in and to teach you. But here's the thing, just keep running the race to Jesus.